All right. Hey, hey, all. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, Baudrillard's second book, The uh, Consumer Society. So I want to preface this episode by saying that I find this text, The Consumer Society, to be my f- least favorite of all of Baudrillard's books. A harsh statement, I know. Uh, the reason I'm stating this is to kind of proactively justify my limited assessment of the book. In many ways, I find that it extends the parts of the system of objects that presented objects, but falls short in comparison to the critical capacity to evaluate those objects indicative of that previous book, i.e. the system of objects. Uh, With that being said, the Consumer Society does have many interesting points, especially toward the end, and we'll surely get into that. So in 1970, Baudrillard's second book was released titled La Société de Consommation. This book can very easily be read as an extension of Baudrillard's project in the system of objects, as it deals heavily with the relationship between objects and consumers, and the greater trends of consumption that govern our object-obsessed era. The first passage of the book eloquently lays the foundation for the rest, and it goes as follows. There is all around us today, <coughs> excuse me, there is all around us today a kind of fantastic conspicuousness of consumption and abundance, constituted by the multiplication of objects, services, and material goods, and this represents something of a fundamental mutation in the ecology of the human species. Strictly speaking, the humans of the age of affluence are surrounded not so much by other human beings as they were in all previous ages, but by objects. The objects elucidated here by Baudrillard are not only inanimate things, but can actually represent humans as well. As we saw in the system of objects, the distinction between humans and objects has grown to be totally transparent to the point where the two have become indistinguishable. Even the presence of other people, then, perpetuates the same matrix of object relations as opposed to human relations. So. Therefore, we are no longer guided by natural ecological laws, but by the law of exchange value. Welcome to the desert of the formal liturgy of the object. The zone for the production and distribution of this lexical matrix of objects is most plainly observed in the mall. The mall is the meeting place of all types of objects, a sort of social club for objects. Baudrillard illustrates the shopping mall rather beautifully when he states that Just as the gods of all countries coexisted syncretically in the Roman pantheon in an immense digest, so all the gods or demons of consumption have come together in our supreme shopping center, which is our pantheon, or our pandemonium. The shopping mall, in much the same capacity as the system of objects, reduces objects to a status of operation, whether that operation be for the development of one's pecuniary decency, a term we'll explore more in his next book, or one's ability to engage in leisure. The the eternal substitution of homogeneous elements now reigns unchallenged. There is no longer any symbolic function, but merely an eternal combinatory of ambience in a perpetual springtime. Baudrillard uses this passage as a segue into a situation that affected Melanesian natives. He meditates on a moment when the Melanesian people, upon seeing planes flying through the air, set about building a simulacrum of an aeroplane from branches and creepers. This moment marks an analogous instantiation to that of the consumer society, where people in the so-called developed West set in place a whole array of sham objects, of characteristic signs, and of happiness. 
An, an analysis of the simulacrum, whether made manifest by the Melanesian people reconstructing airplanes with sticks, or by consumers investing so much time and energy to the submission of objects of consumption, either of these makes apparent the role of sign value in the construction of happiness. Affluence is then merely the accumulation of the signs of happiness. There is no fundamental difference then between the Melanesian people who, even in Baudrillard's analysis, falls prey to the classification of primivity and the hyper-consumers of the West. Baudrillard accentuates his point when he writes that we may draw a parallel with magical thought, for both of these live off signs and under the protection of signs. We are then cast under the order of consumption, which is an order of the manipulation of signs. The role of these signs is similar to that of a conjurer, as that which is signified is conjured away in favor of the sign. In this instance, the thing being signified comes into being at the same moment that it is stripped of its reality, almost paradoxically. The sign then assumes a hyperreal form, as it constitutes, simultaneously, both the affirmation and the negation of any given signified. Presence and absence occur simultaneously in this construction of the sign, and this leaves us sheltered by signs, in the denial of the real. From this point, Baudrillard moves onto the realm of the media as a zone for the dizzying whirl of reality. If we accept my earlier point that the sign marks both the presence and the absence of the object, the media are, pri are the primary distributors of these present-slash-absent signs. The media then are precisely the place where nothing happens. Consumers are left to consume emptiness from the media sphere, the empty place of signifiers that strips that great the great ideological frameworks, politics, history, culture, of their critical capacity, and even more maliciously, their meaning. The media respond to their indifference by proliferating their signs endlessly and with ferocious enthusiasm in an exaggerated form of compensation. For instance, the fact that road accidents play so ferociously well on radio and TV is because the crash is the finest exemplar of daily fatality. To convince ourselves that we have not been committed to a death of sorts, as we too, like the signs we consume, are constituted by both absence and presence, we overplay the death of others and the spectacle of destruction. This is a theme that will come up repeatedly through Baudrillard's thought, specifically with texts like Fatal Strategies and America. The next section of the book takes a somewhat sociological analysis, an economic analysis uh, or approach, with the, with the analysis of data and figures pertaining to GNP and collective expenditure. For a very comprehensive of this chapter on its own, see uh, Corey Garden's video titled The Vicious Circle of Growth, Dash uh, Jean Baudrillard, on YouTube. Uh, it's, it does a much better job than... I will uh, necessarily give this chapter here, so go check that one out. Anyways, I digress. Um, Baudrillard argues that between the years 1959 and 1965, there was a 4% increase from 13 to 17% in collective expenditure meeting individual needs. An immediate response to this phenomenon might be a positive one, but Baudrillard, Baudrillard takes a much more cynical approach, stating that now it seems clear that this redistribution has little effect on social discrimination at all levels. As for inequality of standards of living, comparison of the two studies on family budgets made in 1956 and 65 shows no reduction in the discrepancies. Moreover, direct and indirect taxation does not have any effect of reducing inequality. 
we may be too hasty to read in Baudrillard an apologetic conservative because he goes on to say that the mechanisms of redistribution are a successful me mechanism at maintaining privilege, <coughs> excuse me, of preserving privilege. Baudrillard is trying to locate the hidden hegemonic apparatuses that underlie the veneer of benevolent political practices in the form of a radical hypothesis. However, he fails to proceed from this suggestion to point to the formulations of these oppressive structures and lay out exactly how they maintain privilege in the hands of a select few. In lieu of this analysis, he takes the time to meditate on the environmental impact that the consumer society inflicts on the globe. Regarding the environment, Baudrillard states that we have seen the degradation of shared living space, sort of a rentian nightmare, if you will. Baudrillard sees this general degradation of our shared spaces as evidence of a lack of logicality to the consumer society. Growth for the sake of growth, that's this consumer society's motto, and the environment's well-being is inversely affected by that sort of motto, by that ideological framework. Our mistreatment of the earth attests to the absurdity of this system. Of course, this particular violence is only one of many illogical domains. The built-in obsolescence of products and machines, the destruction of old structures by which certain needs were met, and the increasing number of bogus innovations all participate in the theater of the absurd that has become our world. Despite the overtly evident degradation caused by the consumer society, we are still faced with the overwhelming validity, note validity in quotes, of economic rationality. As the well-being of the world decreases, the financial markets continually point upwards. This attests the absurd gymnastics of accounting illusions. The supposed validity of these financial, inst financial institutions is made possible by the careful selection of certain factors that are visible and measurable. Broadly, this manifests itself in the forms of GDP or GNP to omniscient representation, representations for the system's triumphs or the system's successes. Of course, these measurements exclude many forms of labor like research, culture, and women's domestic labor, which cannot be measured or have not been given the same attention to be measured. Nevertheless, Baudrillard is interested in the selection of what is measurable and ultimately what participates in the GDP or GNP, sort of submission to the system. To this he says, every article produced is positive, every measurable thing is positive. The 30% reduction in the luminosity of air in Paris over the past 50 years is regarded as external and non-existent by the accountants. But if it results in a greater expenditure of electrical energy, of light bulbs, and spectacles, etc., then it exists, and exists moreover as an increase in production and social wealth. The consumer society subscribes to the logic of accumulation, which often connotes the idea of progression, a sort of telos to progression, or telos to the system itself. For Baudrillard, however, this is only a, a clever trompe l'oeil. By attaching significance to these supposedly measurable economic, economic activities, the system contributes to and perpetuates the myth that the economic rationality of the system is guided by some telos. Rather, as Baudrillard asks, does not affluence ultimately only have meaning in wastage? He then answers his own question when he states that for affluence to become a value, there has to be not simply enough, but too much. Waste is an extreme form of affluence where commodities are rendered wholly superfluous. This point may seem paradoxical given the discourse surrounding progress and achievements of advanced industrial capitalist, in, excuse me, of an 
advance industrial capital satisfaction of needs. However, we may be reminded here of that situa- of this that situationist or autonomist uh, saying that capitalism does not necessarily satisfy needs, but it actually creates them. For this reason, Baudrillard seriously considers waste as a wholly productive act in the context of the consumer society and affluence in general. This leads him to suggest that the notion of utility, which has rationalistic economic origins, thus needs to be revised. We cannot simply attach use value to certain objects and then proceed with the conceptualization of proper uses for said objects. We must consider how waste itself represents a matrix of use value that, given its fundamental connection with affluence, is no less valuable. If we extend this thought, however, even the mechanisms intended to distinguish between use value and everything else are inadequate. One cannot isolate what is useful or try to remove what is superfluous. Superfluity here and and use have folded into one another. This is why, most of the time, objects are present by their absence and why their very abundance paradoxically signifies penury. Baudrillard does well to elucidate the slippery terrain of the consumer society, which allows him to level a strong critique against the idealist discourses of reform or revolution, emblematic of sort of Marxist approach. He does this by assuming an implicit consistency in his argument pertaining to use value and superfluity that challenges the possibility that challenges the possibility of equality through the realization of some universal attainment of those things which satisfy needs. In other words, he's getting at the, the issues with uh, simple political strategies or political responses to this system. If the distinction between use value and superfluity has truly been demolished, then the notion that needs point to a reassuring universe of ends is characteristically absurd. Sorry, let me just say that again. If the distinction between use and superfluity has, been, has truly been demolished, then the notion that needs point to a reassuring universe of ends is characteristically absurd. Such a project only contributes to the same discursive and pr- pragmatic strategy employed by the logic of affluence. We must respond to the consumer society by radically challenge- changing focus and approaching the myth of affluence with a logic other than its own, an idea that he returns to uh, quite strongly in uh, his fourth book, The Mirror of Production. The reason we want to do this is because if we pose the problem in terms of the equalization of consumption, then we are already to substitute the pursuit of objects and signs for the real problems and their logical and sociological analysis. So to perform something of a sociological analysis, one condemned by Baudrillard in the early 80s, he turns to John Kenneth Galbraith and his book, The Affluent Society. Of Galbraith, Baudrillard says, please excuse this, this long quote, that Galbraith derives an argument for the underprivileged to the effect that even those on the bottom rung of the ladder have more to gain from an accelerated growth of production than from any other form of redistribution. But this is all specious. For if growth grants everyone access to an income and a volume of goods which are higher in absolute terms, what is sociologically characteristic is the process of distortion which sets in at the very heart of growth. It is the rate of distortion which subtly structures growth and gives it its true meaning. It is so much easier to content oneself with the spectacular disappearance of a particular extreme form of penury or certain secondary inequalities to assess affluence by statistics and general quantities, by absolute increases and gross national products, than to analyze it in terms of structures. 
The sort of liberal economic optimism put forth by Galbraith is the exact sort that Baudrillard sees as being complicit in the structural production of inequality in the consumer society. And we can see this type of criticism mirrored uh, in, in the work of Rosa Luxemburg in Luxemburg's uh, analysis of, I guess, the, uh, the process of accumulation and how, you know, bringing up that debate uh, between reform and revolution when she was challenging what whatever that guy's name was, um, that liberal economic theorist there, uh, who I can probably find if I try really hard. Well, for those that are interested, check out Rosa Luxemburg's The Accumulation of Capital uh, because it's it very much, it, it communicates this point particularly well, even if it isn't necessarily Baudrillardian per se. But nevertheless, I digress again. Uh, this The sort of liberal economic method put forth by Galbraith prides itself on, an ability, on its ability to remove the most exaggerated forms of penury, penury and is sure to tout its victories, and it touts its victories. This approach is constructed around the constellation of growth that is, on one extreme, argued to be the purveyor of equality, but on the other extreme is argued to produce inequality. This distinction sure, is surely indicative of popular political talking points present in useless, which would present a, which are just useless options for Baudrillard as both essentially point to a false problem. Instead, Baudrillard wishes us to think that growth itself is a function of inequality. Growth is an accomplished and systemic inequality, but is neither, but is neither the Messiah nor the Antichrist. It circulates freely, like a mercenary that works for the highest bidder. Ultimately, what Galbraith and others fail to see is that the very fact that economic inequality is no longer a problem in itself constitutes a problem. This is become because poverty does not truly exist in poor neighborhoods, but is actually to be found in the socio socioeconomic structure itself. What we are in need of is a total systemic overhaul that does not submit to either the liberal or Marxist streams of thought, which at best present a moralistic analysis, according to Baudrillard. This is because each of these approaches inadvertently affirm the relative power of commodities and wealth in their very negation. This may correspond most eloquently to a general homogenization of the consumer to a passive being that, with the proper political intervention, will get a taste of the social wealth that has been denied them. In this move, there is the desire to make everyday consumer objects less and less expressive of social rank. This is especially true if we think back to Baudrillard's previous book, The System of Objects, where he argues that the distinction between subject and object or between consumer and consumed, is no longer as clear as it may once have been. If we accept this thesis, we may fill in some of the gaps present in the consumer society in the book. Uh, water time. Always have water. So the conceptual matrix of the cybernetician his idea put forth in his pre in the system of objects, places the subject in dialogue with the object, breaking down the clear barrier between the two. Any performative utterance in favor of this of the distribution of commodity goods, or those things that stand in for wealth in the consumer society, implicitly suggests that objects are at the disposal of humanity's political and social structures, which isn't necessarily a far-fetched idea. However, this would mean then that the system is maintaining a distinction 
between the subject and object or between humans and those things that we surround ourselves with that no longer really exists and is therefore participating in the general hierarchization of things and people or the people that own those things or control those things or perhaps even more maliciously the distribution of the of these status objects given the fundamental connection between humans and objects today paints humans as distributable entities as well totally at the whim of a given political or social authority this is an idea that we will return to uh, later consumers suffer a profound homogenization in the consumer society when Baudrillard puts forth, forth this thesis here, he means it along the same lines as the automatists and the Frankfurt School. Automatists. Or the situationists. That, that sort of uh, late 60s, early 70s camps of thought, like the sort of post-Marxist approaches. Uh, I think of a Guy Debord in, this, in that camp, or even, you know, to keep it more present, perhaps Bifo. Um, and others that, that are indicative of that, that field. So Baudrillard is speaking along the same lines as them and those uh, indicative of the Frankfurt School, as opposed to this theorization of homogenization in, uh, in the form of the cybernetician in the system of objects. So we can see here in this book that he's doing something different, not to say that he's uh, doing away with what he did in his first book, but that he's he's just seems to be interested in something else here. That it's not simply about looking at the cybernetician, but there are other ways to look at the world as well in relation to humans. What can we say about humans today, and what does their place necessarily mean in relation to consumption and the very act of exchange? So, Bojard then submits his own logic to that of the system here suggesting that, ironically, the consumer society corrects social disparities, social hierarchy, and even ever-increasing levels of discrimination. This is not to say that these societal ills have disappeared, however, but that we have essentially become numb to them. Of course, we would be hard-pressed to locate a time in which we were ever cognizant of such ills or really even cared. Rather, our homogenization under the aegis of consumption and the overwhelming allure of the spectacle... <coughs> allows discrimination to operate all the more effectively. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our submission to consumption, even under the pre pretense of demonstrating a certain social position or, to be more mischievous, more malevolent, to stick it to the man, perpetually affirms the systemic logic of consumption, one that is fundamentally oppressive. Perhaps this is one reason why the consumer finds themselves in a never-ending state of definitive dissatisfaction. Baudrillard puts this rather eloquently when he writes that, sociologically, in the face of the endless, naive confusion at the unstoppable advance and boundless renewal of needs, which is in fact irreconcilable with the rationalist theory that a satisfied need creates a state of equilibrium and resolution of tensions, we may advance the hypothesis that, if one admits that need is never so much the need of a particular object as the need for difference, the desire for social meaning, then it will be clear that there can never be any achieved satisfaction, or therefore any definition of need. Baudrillard then goes on to problematically draw a comparison between the consumer society and, in quote, primitive people. For Baudrillard, in an ironically hom homogenizing overstatement, 
The primitive nomadic tribes of Australia, the Kalahari, etc., had no personal possessions. They were not obsessed by their objects, which they throw away as and when they need to in order to be able to move about more easily. This type of economic expenditure signals a society of real affluence because it was guided by improvidence and prodigality. prodigality. Moreover, things in primitive societies were not relativized in relation to others, but were valorized by the very relationship with others. This distinction suggests that, for Baudrillard, in primitive societies, every relationship adds to the social wealth. We would be valid to dismiss, or would be, we would be correct to dismiss Baudrillard's comparison here as, a, as romanticized jargon, but he brings up an inter- interesting foray into the, his, uh, his own theorization of symbolic exchange in the, his following books, which we won't get into too much here. For now, however, we might be wise to take these sweeping overstatements regarding primitive societies and people with a very large grain of salt. Nevertheless, Baudrillard suggests that we can see a fundamental difference between difference as it manifested itself in primitive societies and today. This is because, under the sign of consumption, difference is something that can be consumed. In the past, however, differences of birth, blood, and religion were not exchanged. They were not differences of fashion, but essential distinctions. This distinction that Baudrillard makes is important because it provides something of an illustration of a meaningful mode of expenditure and consumption. This does not mean that we cannot still take issue with Baudrillard's claim. Rather, I believe we can read this as an important foray into a somewhat pragmatic approach by a thinker that has too often been called a nihilist. However, moving past this idea and continuing on with the text, uh, we see Baudrillard begin to evaluate the conditions of signification and their role in the construction of identity notably the construction of the masculine and the feminine. Another very problematic domain in Baudrillardian thought, one that he's been taken to task for by feminist thinkers, and very rightly so. However, I'll present his justification for it uh, here. So for him, the masculine and the feminine, two terms that guide much of Baudrillard's later thought, are immediately challenged as having anything to do with men and women. The rela- And he says, the relationship the relation of the masculine and the feminine to real men and women is relatively arbitrary. This point is integral because many people have read in him theories of the masculine and the feminine, a prescriptive and descriptive meta-theory of the relationship between men and women. Rather, these terms only exist in the simulacral space of consumption and are used by Baudrillard metaphorically to elucidate not the differentiated nature of the sexes, but to call attention to the differential logic of the system. Moreover, Baudrillard uses these terms to transcribe the historical hegemony of men over women in terms of the system itself. Hegemony by men over women. He defines the two as follows. The masculine choice is agonistic. It is, by analogy with the challenge, the noble behavior par par excellence, while the feminine is consigned to the performance of proxy services. She is not autonomously determined. By illustrating the system in these terms, Baudrillard preemptively destabilizes many many liberal social tenets to come out of some social movements in the mid to late 20th century. 
for instance, the notion that the distribution of wealth to those impoverished will destabilize the internal logic of the system is merely a, another trompe l'oeil, and a clever one at that because it does not challenge the preferential treatment of status at the very heart of the system itself. Or, and another, as another example, the liberal feminist model of adding women to management and corporate positions to increase the representation of women in these positions, kind of add women and stir approach, one, you know, one highly challenged today by, by feminist thinkers, especially those that take into consider things like intersectionality or um, take into consideration just, just race or take into consideration uh, trans issues. However, this is, that sort of liberal feminist approach is just another, for Baudrillard, it would just be another clever strategy by the system to keep its wheels spinning while essentially keeping its people happy happy, sort of bread and circuses type deal. So Baudrillard then takes a necessary turn to meditate on the status of culture in the consumer society. And I'm cognizant of the fact that as I write this, I'm indulging in the wonder that is vaporwave, which is really culture at its prime. But to do this, Baudrillard focuses on the kitsch object, that which may be best defined as a pseudo object, a simulation, a copy, an imitation, a stereotype. This kitsch object only comes into being at the opposite moment, in the age of social mobility. The kitsch object serves a purpose of reaffirming the value of the rare, precious, unique object, production of which can also become industrial. Kitsch and the authentic object thus between them organize the world of consumption according to the logic of a distinctive material, which is today always shifting and expanding. For this reason, the kitsch object is fundamentally linked to the aesthetics of simulation. I want to take a second to kind of think about that phrase, the aesthetics of sim of simulation, because uh, if we if we take if we consider the traditional appreciation held of the aesthetic object over the kitsch object, uh, then we can see that it's not as though um, an aesthetic energy is displaced but that we see in Baudrillard's rhetoric almost a radical democratization of the constitutive elements of class or of the, of the aesthetic. If aesthetics can be found in simulation, then it is at risk of ever... Sorry. If aesthetics can be found in simulation, then is it at risk of ever vanishing? And moreover, does that not mean that there will always be the maintenance of some hierarchical prestige attached to the aesthetic in the realm of simulation? For Baudrillard, the answer would surely be no, given the homogenizing force of simulation, but it is an, in, it is an interesting point, a thought experiment nonetheless. So Baudrillard even takes the time to consider the implications of consumption on the art object specifically. He says, the logic of consumption eliminates the traditional sublime status of artistic representation. This is to say that the Kantian notion of the sublime suffers a serious blow in this epoch. No longer can the art object elicit a sense of the sublime, nor even the, the beautiful, to, to you know, be faithful to that Kantian distinction, uh, because the signification of the object has, has been substituted with the image of the object. At this level, the art object may only operate as a sign. In an annoyingly Adorno-like move, Baudrillard goes on to say that pop signifies the end of perspective, the end of evocation, the end of testimony, the end of the creative act, and, last but not least, the end of the subversion of the world and the curse of art. Its aim is not merely the imminence of the civilized world, but its total integration into that world. 
This is indeed why the pop artists paint objects in terms of their real appearance, since it is in that way as ready-made signs, fresh from the assembly line, that they function mythologically. Mythologically. Behind the veneer of pop art production lurks a more insidious adversary to the subversion of the consumer society, and that is that behind the consumption of images looms the imperialism of a system of reading, increasingly only what can be read and what must be read, the legendary, will tend to exist. In this transaction, it is not only the object, be it the art object or an object of the greatest degree of kitsch, that gets read. We read ourselves in the image, and consequently, we open ourselves up to be read, incarceration through presentation. This provides a, a decent foray into the, foray into the next uh, logical point Baudrillard puts forth, and that's his uh, theorization of the body, or his thinking of the body. According to Baudrillard, for centuries, there was a relentless effort to convince people they had no bodies, though they were never really convinced. Today, there is a relentless effort to convince them of their bodies. This is an argument that Baudrillard develops more effectively in his later work, but he makes an interesting case for the realization of the body in the form of advertising. He focuses on an article in L, where someone writes that your body is both your outer limit and your sixth sense. This example illustrates a strategy deployed by the consumer society to convince consumers that even in the system of signification, under the weight of hyperreality, there exists a body that tr transcends the vanity of production. Of course, ironically, this natural body is only absorbed back into the system of representation as an ultimate symbol or sign of reality. What is interesting is the suggestion that one should never revert back into one's own body and invest it narcissistically from the inside, not in any sense to get to know it in any depth, but by a wholly fetishistic and spectacular logic to form it into a smoother, more perfect, more functional object for the outside world. Mirroring, in some sense, Gilles Deleuze and uh, Félix Guattari's identification of a body without organs, Baudrillard calls attention to the body not as a body per se, but as a shape. In this moment, the body attains an unprecedented value. The body today, apparently triumphant, has quite simply taken over from the soul. As mythic instance, as dogma and a salvational schema. In all of Baudrillard's work, it is unclear to discern what impact, and this totally side note, um, it's unclear to know what kind of impact Simon Vai may have had on him. He makes no reference to her in any of his more than 30 books, save one instance in an interview uh, when I believe it was Philippe Petit uh, asks him about her. But we can see in Baudrillard's thinking about the body here as being the substituting, as a substitution for the soul, uh, certainly some, some affinities between him and uh, Simon Vai's criticism of the present day and her mysticism in uh, in general. However, to return, uh, the emancipation of the body from the clutches of naturality, whatever that might mean, or the anxiety induced by the unknown, opens the terrain for the ideal image of the body to take point. The obsession with looking after one's figure can be understood in terms of the same categorical imperative. We know that this contemporary phenomenon to have, uh, we know this contemporary phenomenon to have no affinity with a natural human property 
or a natural human inclination because slimness has not always been regarded as an attractive quality. Baudrillard then questions what it is about slimness, or that looking over one's figure, that is gifted with this symbolic power. <clears throat> Excuse me. If it is truly arbitrary, it seems as though the same could have been true of obesity, or whatever we consider to be non-slim. He states that, Might it be that in a society of overconsumption, of food, slenderness becomes a distinctive sign in itself? I would add that slimness, the symbolic demonstration of minimalization, matches the logic of the system that perpetually emancipates itself from the excessive baggage of meaning. Our obsession to remove excess mirrors the system's own emancipation from this excessive meaning. We exist then in the anorexic ruins, a term, a title of a short piece of his that was delivered at a conference, at a talk in the mid-90s. And that can be found in a small volume titled Looking Back on the End of the World, which is, um, I'd highly recommend it, as thinkers from Baudrillard to uh, Camper to uh, Virilio that's, that all gave talks there. And it's a very small book and very complicated. It's not, it's not very accessible in any way, but quite brilliant. However, again, sorry... Sorry for digressing. The unconscious, like the body, serves as a point of transcendental significance for, for humans under the sign of consumption, or under the consumer society, or within the consumer society. He says, people have to believe that they have an unconscious, that that unconscious is there, projected into, an, into and objectified in the erotic symbolism of advertising, which serves as a proof that it exists, that they are right to believe in it, and therefore to wish to come to terms with it, first at the level of the reading of symbols, then by the acquisition of the goods designated by those symbols and supporting those fantasies. Is it any coincidence then that only two years before publishing The Unconscious, before Freud published The Unconscious, Ford Motor Company introduced the first large-scale moving assembly line? I think not. But that's just my, that's my conspiracy theory for the day. So the, the end of this book, uh, we see a bit of a turn. Baudrillard, you know, looks at a film, which is uh, my favorite part of the whole book because it, it feels um, more original than the rest uh, because I, the rest of the book is, is good, but you could read something better of this, on the same subject matter uh, by so many other people. Um, but this part is, is something special, I find. So he concludes this book by analyzing uh, The Student of Prague, a German silent film from the 1930s. This film is surprisingly, with sarcasm, about a student in Prague. This student, ambitious at heart and madly in love, finds that the woman of his dreams belongs to a class of society that is far out of his reach. One day, however... The devil appears to the student who offers him a pile of gold for the student's mirror image. Of course, with the hopes of winning the affection of his crush, the student takes the gold, at which point the devil peels the student's reflection off of the mirror in the room. After this point, the student can no longer see his reflection in the mirror, an inconvenience, but not necessarily devastating for the student. However, one day, the boy sees his mirror reflection 
mirror reflection walking through the streets of Prague. I think it's water time again. Excuse me. Terrified at seeing his own reflection, the student tries everything he can do to avoid any interaction with his reflection. However, his reflection continually reappears, filling in the student's social contracts, standing in for him in his life before the student can get the chance to. The student decides, then, that the best course of action is to try and kill his reflection. He prepares a firearm and, await and awaits an interaction with the reflection. It so happens that he encounters the reflection in his room, very convenient, uh, the same place where he had sold his reflection, firing the gun at the image, killing it. However, at the same moment, we could probably guess what happens, uh, the student finds himself in great agony and he falls to the ground. Quote, for by killing his image, he is killing himself. Baudrillard effectively analyzes the text as follows. The mirror image here symbolically represents the meaning of our acts, that is, us in this consumer society type paradigm. These build up around us in a world that is in our image. The transparency of our relation to the world is expressed rather well by the individual's unimpaired relation to his image in a mirror. The faithfulness of that reflection bears witness, to some degree, to a real reciprocity between the world and ourselves. Symbolically, then, if that image should be missing, it is the sign that the world is becoming opaque, that our acts are getting out of control, and at that point, we have no perspective on ourselves. With that guarantee, no identity is possible any longer. I become another to myself. I am alienated. Baudrillard continues, We may therefore suggest that the age of consumption being the historical culmination of the whole process of accelerated productivity under the sign of capital, is also the age of radical alienation. It is not only the individual that has bargained their image. It is not only the individual that has bargained their image, however. Baudrillard takes this theory further, suggesting that it is society as a whole which has struck a contract with the devil. We would be too hasty to assume that a conceptual matrix of individual interactions, even an interaction with oneself, is ever conceivable in the consumer society. For this reason, Baudrillard brings the question back to the problem of the system, because we have no myth equivalent to the one illustrated in The Student in Prague, or that is, the consumer society has no myth that communicates its own reality, communicates its own kind of ontological condition, as well as The Student in Prague does. This myth, the student in Prague, captures the essence of our alienation in a profound way, and we must be careful not to conjure away this myth, or, or, or uh, conjure away the, the transcendental kind of properties of this myth or its ability to communicate to us. If there ever comes a point when we cease to produce myths, it will be because the consumer society has itself become its own myth. This tautological proclamation captures the essence of this book, The Consumer Society, I find, particularly well. And not just because the book itself is repetitive and circular. No, because Baudrillard's fear of our becoming myth is a fear that propels the consumer society. We drive toward the more real than real with our com compensatory technological apparatuses, all in order to dispel the world of myth to bring all the corners of the globe and the darkest recesses of the mind into view, 
To become a myth ourselves would be a poetic response by the gods against our own transgressions, and maybe we would be lucky to be granted that privilege because, I ask, what will remain once the final illusion has been purged by the coloni- by the colonization of the image? So I guess so there ends um, a, a kind of presentation of this of this book, uh, but I, I hope that it was in some sense helpful for those looking for a kind of way to get into it. And I don't know if anyone shared my sort of dismay with this text. Uh, it, it really is just one, even I, I, I read it, I've read it in its entirety, I guess twice now, and I just can't seem to get into it. And that we all have those, those books. It, it, it happens, but, I hope that other people can get more out of it than I do. Uh, however, with his next books and his next 30 books, I'm going to, you know, it'll be more fun for me to uh, explore those just because of the, what I feel to be their radical capacity. Their critical uh, content is just much more engaging to me. And I, I hope that I'm not too annoying to listen to. But anyways, thank you for listening. Uh, for anyone who's interested in the transcript, you can find it in the um, little description section. But for now, I'll, uh, I'll tune out and I'll catch you all next time.